What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit. This is HudsonRiverRadio.com. I'm Michael Wharton. I'm Linda Zimmerman. And this is Murder in the Hudson Valley on HudsonRiverRadio.com. And good evening. I'm Mike Wharton. And I'm Linda Zimmerman. And we have another uh, bizarro case. Today. Yes, we do. Um, but first, you're going to open up with a, another one of our cold cases. Yes. And I, I do want to mention, if anyone has any suggestions for cold cases, you can uh, email me at lindaz, L-I-N-D-A-Z, at HudsonRiverRadio.com. And um, we usually go through these shows and, and completely forget to mention that we have books. Yes, so, we do. <laughs> um, yes. So we have been reminded <clears throat> we have books. So um, if you're enjoying these shows, a lot of them are in my book, Hudson Valley Homicide. And I have about 29 other books and other, yes. <laughs> other top, wide range of topics and you can michaeljwarden.com is my website. I've got a couple books out and more in the works, so please visit my site, visit Linda's site. Yes, thank you. He is hot on the heels of a new of yes. a new book and that will be very exciting. Yes. We'll have to debut that that here. That's a good idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, all right then, let us jump into the uh, the cold case of of the day. And this takes place on August 10th, 1978. And a man was jogging on Goble Road in New City about 6.40 in the morning. And there in a wooded lot was the body of a woman. So it's kind of bizarre. He calls the police and doesn't give his name and just says where the body can be found. Which is maybe he was in shock, but you, if you had nothing to do with it, you kind of might have want to. Usually, you do kind of stick around. You yeah. know, you give your name. Listen, this is such and such. I think I found a body. <laughs> right. So they're thinking this is probably the murderer. And then later on that day, the man's wife calls and said, "No, he was just jogging by. I don't know why he didn't give his name." So, you know, there there went that suspect. But the the victim was um, a woman who had grown up in Piermont and was living in Nyack on uh, 8 South Broadway. Her name was Amy Stafford, 27 years old. She had uh, graduated from beautician school and, and was looking for a job. She was last seen about 2, two 3, 3.30, it wasn't quite sure. So very early that morning, she was seen walking west on Main Street, and then three hours later, uh, her body is found on Goble Road in New City. How did she get there? Obviously, somebody, 
person or persons unknown had driven her there. And it turns out she was stabbed in the heart three times. So so pretty Ooh. brutal. Yeah. Um, there was no sign of a sexual assault, no robbery. Uh, but th- this is so disturbing. When the police went around the neighborhood interviewing residents, several admitted they heard screaming in the middle of the night and did nothing. That that kind of reminds me of the what's it the Kitty Genevieve story yes. from New York City where everybody kind of looked out the window and not my problem. It's very right. sad. It could have been perhaps prevented. You don't have to go out of the house, you know, if somebody's out there a murderer is out there, but you know, could you pick up the phone and Right. And yell out your window, I'm calling the police. Right. Right. So unfortunately she she passed away. Um police think she knew her killer. Uh, because she, you know, traveled there with with somebody. She had been arrested a several day, about a week earlier um, for disorderly conduct with a couple of friends. So maybe she got a little, you know, partying a little too hard yeah. in, in Nyack. But her mother said that a week earlier, she had told, uh, Amy had told her mother that a man she knew was trying to force her to have sex. So they would love to know who this man was. She did have a tattoo with the name Ronald. They did track down Ronald, uh, apparently cleared him. But she was also wearing a silver ring with the initials G-E-C. They, as far as I know, they do not know who G-E-C is. So there's another um, mystery. So if you know anything about uh, the murder of Amy Stafford, August 10th, 1978, again, grew up in Piermont, uh, was living in Nyack at the time and found on Goble Road in New City. But, but there's more to this, which um, is really even more heartbreaking. So her parents, uh, William and Eloise Stafford, the murder of a daughter is, is just inconceivable. Well, just three months later on November 4th, their other daughter, Bonnie, drowned in a freak diving accident in That's California. Terrible. So within three months, one daughter to this accident, one daughter to murder. And then it gets even stranger because the Staffords were, were really best friends or very close friends with the Bohovesky family in Pearl River. Now, if you grew up in I you know, born and raised in Pearl River. And this is uh, very memorable to me because in 1980, just two years later, the Bohovesky's daughter, Paula, was raped and murdered in in Pearl River. A very, very sad case. And uh, one case we might want to mention in the future because um, Paula's murderer um, is trying to get out of jail. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. So we need to keep an eye on that and keep him where he belongs. <clears throat> but the Staffords were, William and Eloise were one of the first people at the Bohovesky house. And obviously they could relate to it. And, and Eloise told Mrs. Bohovesky, you don't get over it, but the pain eases with time. You go on, you don't look back, you don't ever look back. So... Uh, we've mentioned this so many times, murder of a single person affects so many people. 
And here, this group of people, two daughters murdered, um, one one dies of an, in an accident. So if you have any information on this case, please contact the NIAC police. Um, email us if you have any, any word, if you want to remain name, anonymous. We don't care. Yeah, but it's, it's important. And again, we, we stress this every show, but this could be the first time you're listening. Don't assume the police know what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, don't assume... Oh, it's probably insignificant. Um, they wouldn't be interested. They probably already know it because they might not know it. And there's probably at this point a whole other set of detectives, um, yes. if they are still working on the case at all. Uh, obviously, it has remained open. But uh, your thoughts on this? That she probably knew the. Yeah, it sounds like. I mean, I would think she knew the person, whether it was a you know an ex boyfriend, a love interest, or. Just someone she knew and gave her a ride, and maybe this was the man that was allegedly trying to force her to have sex. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, stabbing in the heart. Uh, again, this is a very violent, very brutal. Not that murder is ever not violent and brutal, but sometimes they just seem to be a little bit more over the top. Yeah, a little more personal. With yeah. This. When you're stabbing someone, that's that's personal. You're mm-hmm. right there in front of them. There's no distance. It's not like a mm-hmm. gunshot. Right. So. Right. So again, Amy Stafford, August 10th, 1978. All right. So what case do you have for us today? So we're going to stretch the definition of the Hudson Valley a little bit and well, go to Port really. Jervis. It's Orange County. Orange <laughs> yes. County. That's... My hometown, my stomping grounds, Port mm-hmm. Jervis. And it's an interesting case from 1903. And it's the murder of a man named John Martin by a German immigrant named Albert Koping. Okay. A rather young guy. Mm-hmm. And it's now, a, now, how old was John Martin? Um, he was age 40. Okay. But it's interesting because I found this the hard way, doing research on something else. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to mention, and I know you can relate to this, there's a problem when you're doing historical research, you suddenly find something else that pops out. And the next thing you know, it's like splitting in two. And then, of course, you find it. So I had no intention. Of, I didn't even know this case existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I did come across the first reference, the, the thing that jumped out at me, it was a mention of the, I won't get too far ahead, but it mentioned that it was uh, the murder of John Martin on Rumsey Street. Okay. I grew up on Rumsey Street. Wow. There you go. So of course, curious me, I'm like, what? Rumsey Street? <laughs> you, only... didn't, you didn't know about this growing up? No. So I start, of course, digging and sure enough, it occurred two doors away from where I grew up. Wow. In a house where my friend's grandparents lived. Mm -hmm. My friends lived across the street from their grandparents. We'd been in that house, I couldn't tell you how many times growing up. In and out of the house, in their backyard. Blew me away. I actually got on Facebook and contacted them and said, did you ever hear about this? And they're like, no. In they fact, did. They lived in the house and didn't know there had been no, a murder. No, and they said, no. Oh, I think the house is from, like from 1910. I'm like, no, it's from the 1870s. Ah. Oh. Um, I said the 1910, and a lot of the deeds in Port Jervis say 1910 because they did a like a re canvassing. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't know the year the house was built, they just put that year. Oh, geez. Well, that's that's bizarre. So this is a case that I started digging and actually found mm-hmm. photographs. Of course, none of it were police records because they don't exist anymore. Um, But so this is just fascinating because this happened two doors down from where I grew up on a street I grew up on. My parents still live on, by the way, (laughs) and nobody knew it. 
That's you never know what's happened in your house. No, you don't. Actually, it's great when you think about it. For us, <laughs> scary but great. Yes, <laughs> you know, for us crazy researchers. But um, so let's go back in time to 1903. Um, and this case is also remarkable. We've had cases on here with pretty bad police work at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. This is going to be one of the cases where it's the opposite. It's actually surprisingly good police work. Refreshing. This yeah, this very is um, refreshing. And I think that's what blew me away about this case more than just that it was my, you know, my hometown where I grew up. It's mm-hmm. a really well done case. So, John Martin lives at 15 Rumsey Street uh, in Port Jervis. He's married to Rosie, and they've been married for 20 years. They have four children. They have a son Harry who's 18. They have a son, Frank, who's 16, a daughter, Stella, she's 13, and then they have a four-year-old, Hazel. So they've got quite a spread of children age-wise. They've lived on Rumsey Street for quite a while. They own their home. Okay. And John, who is age 40, is a glove cutter. A glove cutter. Was yes. that a big business? There, there was a glove company. Oh, okay. So I think there was a couple actually in town. So he was a glove cutter. He cut gloves, I guess. <laughs> so that was his job. And in May of 1902... Rosie becomes acquainted with a 22-year-old German immigrant, a young Uh man. Yes. Half the age of her husband. Half the age of her husband, and there is a lot of alluding to that in this Mm -hmm. story. His name is Albert Coping, um, and he actually immigrated when he was 16. So he's been in America for a few years. He had lived in New York City. He tried his hand at a couple of different careers and ended up in the brewing business. So he comes to board with them in May of 1902 which wasn't unusual for Port Jervis. They, people boarded out to a lot of different people. You had railroaders who rented rooms, you know, people like this who were immigrants trying to, to sort of get their way. And it was a way of people paying their bills. Mm-hmm. Port Jervis was a big railroad town, correct? Yes, yes. So there was a lot of people coming and going. Right. So, you know, renting a room out was not an unheard mm-hmm. of thing. So although maybe being half her husband's age helped, I don't yeah. know. We'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> So he was a brewer, and he actually worked not far from where he lived at the Deer Park Brewery in Port Jervis, Mm -hmm. which another connection, when I was a kid, they were ruins. So when we were kids, we used to go up there and trespass and explore the ruins of the Deer Park Brewery. Um, Statute of limitations is way expired on those (laughs) trespassing charges. So, But very interesting because, again, these are childhood places that I can connect to. Right. And then, yes, when it's personal like that, it brings on a right. whole new dimension. And then it's like, wow, this is like what happened here. Very interesting. Uh, he also had worked for the Erie Railroad for a few months prior to this, this tragedy. Uh, he was married in 1899 but became estranged. She actually, his wife had him locked up for non-support. Oh, boy. But um, he also did some time for larceny, so I think he had a few issues. Now, what law. exactly is larceny for those of us who... <laughs> Stealing property that okay. doesn't belong to you. Okay. So it could be money, property. Okay. Um, so he was a thief. Um, he was a thief he, and a non-supporter. He left his wife, didn't support her. All right, so we, we are getting an idea of his character yes. at this point. Um, so he lives with them about seven weeks. <clears throat> There's some kind of an unspecified dispute between he and John Martin. Mm-hmm. And he's asked to move out, and he does. Now, we can speculate on what that unspecified dispute is. However, two weeks later, he says, can I come back? And they allow him to. So maybe they needed the money. Maybe Rosie needed Albert. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know why they let him back. Right. Um, 
love to know the nature of that. Uh, Was it uh, suspicion of infidelity? Was he stealing from them? Did they just not get along? And and what's interesting is, you know, being 1903, the papers are so, everything's so cautious about talking about adultery. Of course. So they'll they'll hint at it and dance around it, but they'll never just come out and say it. Mm -hmm. Even though they try to sensationalize things, there's some things are just too taboo, I guess. So in February of 1903, this is where things escalate very quickly. On February 18th, there's a dispute over rent. So initially, John confronts Albert and says, you owe me like five months rent. Wow. And Albert says, no, it's only three. So they have a little bit of a fight. John's like, you need to get out. You need to move out of my house. You're not paying the rent. Get out. Oh, he may have been paying the rent, but not in money. (laughs) Yeah, I have to agree with you on that, I think. (laughs) But the next day, February 19th, around 11 in the morning now, John comes home from work, and he finds Albert is still there. He's not happy about this. Albert's supposed to be out of the house. Mm -hmm. He's not. He's in the house. Martine goes. He grabs his scissors and his comb. He's going to bring it to work because him and his brother are going to give each other haircuts. Okay. His brother did work there. Oh, okay. Because I actually came across a photograph of the glove company workers and he's in it and his brother oh so it's a pretty pretty cool connection there right so he puts together this stuff to bring to work the next day he sees albert's coat on his chair he has a favorite chair okay it's a rocking chair Mm -hmm. and it's in the dining room of the house near the bottom of the stairs so he takes the coat and he kind of throws it into the parlor on the couch which kind of aggravates albert doesn't like his stuff thrown around so he confronts him about it, and you know I think at this point John's just ignoring him. He takes out his little folding pocket knife and begins to clean his nails, which is what everybody probably did back then. Rosie tells him, this is according to Rosie now, to put the knife away. And he says no. Um, he says, well, at least give it to me. He's like, no, I'm cleaning my nails. Mm-hmm. So Rosie leaves the dining room and goes into the front parlor to adjust the stove. Suddenly she hears gunshots. Uh-oh. She hears four gunshots, actually. Bang, 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 bang. Very rapid succession. Hmm. Little Hazel, the four-year-old, happened to be standing next to her father as he's in his rocking chair at this moment. Hazel comes running frantically into the front parlor. Suddenly, John appears in the hallway. It's a very small hallway between the dining room and parlor. Mm -hmm. He collapses, says, I'm shot. Lands on his face, and that's nothing. Dead. So that was his final words. Yes. I am shot. I'm shot. He's dead. There's four shots and total fired. Albert rushes out the front door, basically has to go over the body oh. to get out of the house. So he rushes out of the house. Um, what I find interesting is Rosie sends ha- sends Hazel to the next door neighbor. The four-year-old. The four-year-old to a Mrs. Cattle or Cattle and says, I guess she had a telephone. They didn't, they didn't have okay. one. You know, can you go telephone the doctor? And also some family members, like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, call the doctor, get some family members up here. So she does, and then Mrs. Cato comes over and stays with Rosie until things start to, you know, escalate. So doctors arrive, and they actually are going to conduct the autopsy right in the parlor of the house. Wow. So they had a folding portable table. 
Well, that that reminds me of remember when we were at the Lizzie Borden house. Yes, they conducted uh, the autopsy like on the dining room table. Yes, they actually used oh. the dining room table at the oh. Lizzie Borden house. At least they brought like an embalmer's table or some okay. portable table. But still, again, we used to sit in that room as kids all the time. And, and... there was an auto a murder and an autopsy, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, that's where you played your video games. Yeah, just. It's huh. mind bound. I'm still blown away by it. Like right. just talking right. about so it. So you can picture this in your head exactly yes. the, the scene. I can definitely. So, meanwhile, John, we knew Albert has shot John. He leaves the house. Well, he mm-hmm. walks to the police headquarters, which is oh, downtown. So he's not trying to get away. No. So he walks. It's I don't know three quarters of a mile, maybe mm-hmm. down to where the old police headquarters used to be on Sussex Street. He walks in and he sees Chief Townsend. Westbrook there. And he says, I just shot John Martin in self-defense. And he hands the cop the revolver. Okay. There's the revolver. It turns out later on that that was John Martin's revolver. So. Shot with his own gun. Shot with his own gun. Yes. So what does the chief do? Well, he locks him up, first Mm -hmm. of all. And then he builds him a fire. It is February. He builds him a fire. He builds him a fire. Okay. No sense running to the crime scene. No. Then he walks to the residence and arrives about 45 minutes after the shooting occurred. No sense of urgency here. That's remarkable. And this is the chief of police. This is Chief Townsend. Okay. Um, At the time, there was no police cars. I'm surprised he didn't have a wagon. Something. Of course. You know, so he walked all the way. Um, I can only imagine, you know, it's February, builds in the fire. I I keep putting myself in police work today versus, you know, we'd be there minutes today. Right. Not. Right. Let me build you a fire. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you'll be okay until I get back. So he has no idea. I I would imagine neither of them know if he's dead at this point. Right. They don't know. Again, no sense of, of we have to get there ASAP. Right. I think... Albert's assumed he's dead the way okay. he the way he has gone down so quickly. Okay. But it's never really really said. So he gets up there and he walks into the house and there's people there already, including reporters from in the, paper, the house on the crime scene. Because the reporters were hanging out at the police station when he came in. Oh. So what did they do? They beat him to the punch. They <laughs> ran up there practically. So, you know, the chief gets there, there's reporters, it's just I can only imagine today a crime scene being handled this way mm-hmm. would be a defense attorney's dream. But he arrives, he sees the body where it is. It hasn't been touched. He's face down. There's a knife in his right hand. Um, there's actually a reporter sitting in his rocking chair. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Is that And that was where he was shot that was where in he, the chair and a reporter sitting. Sitting in his chair. Yep. So again, imagine that today. The field that the defense would have. And that's why, you know, crime scene integrity is is so important. Mm-hmm. So they conduct this autopsy. There's two doctors, actually three participate in total, you know, right there in the parlor. Mm-hmm. Poor John, split open and probed. Um, and they make a couple of determinations, which I think are are pretty important forensically. It's a 32 caliber bullet mm-hmm. that has taken his life. And he's been hit three times. Four shots have been fired. But he's been hit three. Three, okay. So the first shot is to the front breast, about two inches above the nipple. That's how mm-hmm. it's described. This is important because the next two shots are in the back. Oh boy! So the first shot 
two inches above the nipple on the front breast. Right. The second shot that hits is two inches below the lower shoulder, basically the shoulder blade. Okay. A little off of the spine. The third shot is seven inches lower and about four inches from the center of the spine. Um, both shots to the back. The fourth shot actually missed, which was the first shot. Okay. Hit the wall. So the so, first shot hit the wall. Okay. Second shot hit him in the chest. Third and fourth shots hit him in the back. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> I, I would think the third and fourth shots, you're not in self-defense anymore. Obviously, he was turning and running for his life. Yes. Um, and it's and it's kind of sad um, because the doctors actually, I, I figured the way the doctor explained it was probably better. Do you want to read that or... Can you, can the you cause your, of death? Your, yes, my coroner's nineteenth uh, century. My nineteenth uh, <laughs> century nineteen oh three coroner's voice. Um, we found that it entered under the third rib on the right side of the chest, two and three quarter inches from the breastbone. That it passed through the upper lobe of the right lung, through the pleura, and through the aorta, the main blood vessel leading to the heart. It passed through that at about three quarters of an inch from the heart. And then through the left lung, the left pleura, and then struck the seventh rib a little back of the middle and was found in the left pleura cavity. In my judgment, this shot produced his death. The wound was necessarily fatal. That's a lot of damage for a, yes. for a single bullet. Wow. So, and it would be consistent with what was witnessed. That mm -hmm. the, the shot entered him. He stood up had a couple of seconds of consciousness in him until the the ruptured aorta just right bleeding out internally right. oh mm -hmm. yeah you you get a 32 caliber through the aorta right seconds to go so that death was in you know rather instantaneous you know he bled out on the floor and and still with that he then received two more shots yes. to the back yes which may or may not have been fatal there was some discussion about that but it was kind of irrelevant at that point. At that point, it's, for sure. You know, he's... Dead man walking. Yes. But it's important because, again, self-defense is what the allegation mm -hmm. is. And self-defense of a man running away is a little hard of a stretch. Yes. So, should we um, take a break here? Uh, I think we should probably take a break because think... things are going to get interesting with the forensic investigation. Okay. And I like that stuff. I'm Karen Noe. I'm a psychic medium and spiritual author. Join me for the Angel Quest show here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. We'll discuss spiritual topics such as near-death experiences, reincarnation, life after death, how your thoughts create your reality, creating peace on earth, and so much more. On the first Saturday of every month at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. HudsonRiverRadio.com. We're so good, we don't need a transmitter. Michael Warden here. Did you know you can now subscribe to all of Hudson River Radio's podcasts, including Murder in the Hudson Valley, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Spreaker. And of course, they're always available right in our Hudson River Radio app, which you can download on iTunes and Google Play. You can hear our podcast anytime and anywhere. You can also sponsor one of our shows to get your message heard locally and around the world. Your commercial will play at least 10 times every day, seven days per week, on Hudson River Radio's live broadcast. And you can choose which podcast will include your spot. 
We will even produce your commercial for free with a four-week commitment. All of this is available for an unbeatable $49 per week. Just shoot an email to info at HudsonRiverRadio.com and we'll get you started. That's info at HudsonRiverRadio.com. And we are back talking about the murder of John Martin at the hands of Albert Culping. And John has um, died from massive internal hemorrhaging from a ruptured aorta, thanks to the thirty-two caliber bullet mm-hmm. that has passed through him. And so there's some interesting forensic work that that's conducted. And I have the photos to prove it, because when I did some digging on this case and I obtained some of the court records that are available, the photographs were included. Oh, that's fabulous. And they're not crime scene photos, unfortunately, but they were taken at a later date and they had a county detective um, who came in along with a deputy sheriff and a constable. um, And of course, the chief and a local officer helped, but Mm -hmm. he came in because the issue was, where was John? When he was shot, where was Albert when he shot him? So they actually, number one, they find where that first bullet went. Oh, They okay. actually dig it out of the mm-hmm. wall. But based upon the bullet holes and the trajectory, they actually hang yarn and poles from the ceiling to show the trajectory of the bullets. That's fabulous. Today they use lasers. lasers, But but they were doing, this is 1903, they're doing this, bullet trajectory? We talk about cases where the police work at this time of the the century was terrible. And then I see this and I'm like, whoa, go Port Jervis police. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's, and they actually took the photos of these poles as they were. That's remarkable. Um, They also took a picture of the front of the house, which today it's, doesn't look the same because they changed the windows. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the houses on that black block look the same. So it's actually looks like my parents' house. Wow. So my parents' house probably looks more like the murder house. Than, right. Same layout? Yeah. Um, similar. Well, similar. Yeah. Very similar. Um, in fact, when I first found out about this case, my kids tried to convince my parents that it was their house. They would, <laughs> they would lay on the floor in the foyer and be like, he's right here. <laughs> Freaking my mom out, you know? Of course. But so they also took pictures of the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, so just it was a well thought out, you know, they put a lot of time and effort into this. And basically they were able to show that the first shot that hit John Martin, he was sitting down and it came from the small landing at the bottom of the stairs. So how threatened right. could coping be? Right. So he was shot initially sitting down. He jumped up to run out of the house or into the parlor, wherever he was going to go. And mm-hmm. as he got up out of the chair to run away, Albert continued to to shoot him two more times. So definitely not a very good, you know, good defense at this point. No. So it goes before the grand jury in April of 1903, April 14th to be exact, and he's indicted for murder, the willful murder of John Martin. And it goes to the jury trial in Orange County Court before the Honorable Wilmont Smith. And, of course, some big names in Orange County. Uh, the district attorney was Powelson, and his assistant was Seeger. And their names that I see pop up a lot in old criminal cases. So they've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Another one is Wilton Bennett. He was the defense attorney. I see his name quite a bit, too. Oh, really? So, okay. So he got uh, – now, how would how would Coping have afforded a good defense attorney? I don't know. He actually showed up at the house that night and said, I, I represent him. 
Huh. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, so he ends up representing him. He was at the house, the crime scene again. Everybody, come on we, in. We don't want defense attorneys or any attorneys at the crime scene, yeah. basically. Bring and, everyone in to watch the autopsy. And Yes. Um, and actually, during the break, we kind of had a little discussion about where was the family during the autopsy? Were they all hanging out? Yeah, the mother, the wife and kids. I mean, were... it wasn't a very big... The, the front of that house, the parlor room, isn't very big. Mm-hmm. Even today, it's still about the same dimension. So I couldn't imagine putting a table in the middle oh. unless they move stuff around and then doing your, your ghastly deeds in the autopsy. Um, very bizarre. At least to us it is. Back then, I guess, you know, they wouldn't bomb people in the house. I guess. Um, not what I want to see. No. So the trial commences on June 15th, 1903. They didn't mess around back then. Things happen very quickly. You're indicted. It goes to trial. Right. You know, none of this. We're going to let things mull around for months. Right. You know, we're going to get things done. The prosecution opens with Rosie Martin, and they put her on the stand. So she can kind of introduce the family, the relationship with Albert, how Mm -hmm. it came to be that he lived with them. Um, some of the issues that might have been involved there. The prosecution then uses police witnesses, the doctors, to basically say, yeah, you know, this is what killed him. Right. Very important to show that the bullet entering the front of his body caused his death. The mm-hmm. other two didn't, but he was still shot in the back. Right. Um, so they're establishing that Albert Copping did it, which he doesn't deny, by the way, um, and that he shot John Martin while he's seated. Because that's very important to the prosecution's case. Of course. So how do you justify it being self-defense? How do you feel that you're threatened if you're across the room and the other man's seated? Right. Well, because Albert's going to argue that he came at him with the knife. Ah, okay. But we know from the trajectory that it was not possible Mm -hmm. because John Martin was a pretty big guy. Oh, really? So had they been face-to-face, it would have been a completely different type of an injury. I see. And the trajectory would have been totally different. So I think without that testimony, it might have been a different outcome. Mm. You know, then I think it would have been left to the jury to sort of like, eh, maybe maybe not. But here's somebody who's basically saying, no, this is the trajectory. You know, we we hung yarn. We have these sticks. We Mm -hmm. can show you. They introduced the photos. The jury can actually look at them. Right. That must have been pretty amazing for 1903. Yeah, I can only imagine the jury being mesmerized right. by that possible, like, wow. You know, you didn't get to see a lot of photos introduced in, into mm-hmm. evidence back then. So we, we're talking about the trial. Uh, Martin's brother-in-law, he testified that um, Albert said he would fix that son of a bitch the day before the crime. So Coping said, yes. Albert Coping said, I, yes. oh. Yes. And he, why is he saying this in front of Martin's so remember brother-in-law? The, remember weird. the night before the murder, he's he's told to leave and he yes. leaves the house. Well, he goes down to the, the brother-in-laws. Okay. And that's, um, you know, he's married to Rosie's sister. Okay. So basically he's spouting off and venting and... Says, I'll fix that son of a bitch. Not the smartest thing to do if you're planning to murder. Tell no. the brother-in-law. No, because that establishes premeditation. Premeditation. Oh. And premeditation is not a good thing <laughs> for a, a murder defendant in New York right. in 1903. <laughs> and we'll talk about why that is in a little bit. 
So when the people get all done and they put put together a pretty basic case, mm-hmm. they don't really go into a lot of the relationship. They kind of skirt that. The people rest and the defense says, well, you know, they haven't proven their case. We, we move for an acquittal, which is a pretty traditional tactic. They still right. do it today. Just a standard, right. let's give it a shot. Right. And- Good try. We move for an acquittal, not enough right. evidence. And almost always it's, you know, denied. Sounds like a good amount of evidence to me. Yes. So then they open up their case. So they were prepared, obviously, to right. to prevent this justification case. So Albert has to take the stand. If he's going to make out justification, he has to he has okay. to testify. Sure. Um, and even today, you know, attorneys would tell you it's always a gamble when you put a defendant on the stand. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty big risk. He spins a, a story about Martine being a drunkard who abused his wife and kids. Uh, the blaming the victim yes. uh, tactic. Um, and how he had to save them many times from oh. his abusive behavior. So he's the hero here. He is. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, he claimed that Martine was always looking for his revolver and that, you know, Rosie had to hide it. Mm-hmm. And Rosie does testify that she hid the revolver, but not on purpose. I think it was just, it was in the, a drawer at the top of the okay. stairs. So as to the fatal incident... His version was, and I'm not even going to try a German accent. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I was up there dressing. Mr. Martin came home. When Mr. Martin came home, I was tying my necktie. Mr. Martin then threw my clothes around. I was going for my coat and vest, and he threw my coat and vest around, and he says, you son of a bitch, I will kill you. With that, he went for me with a knife, and Mrs. Martin handed me the revolver and said, defend yourself. Wow. So that's where he got the gun. Rosie gave him the gun. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting twist. Oh, this puts this in a whole other light, doesn't it? And defend yourself against my husband. Husband, who has a pocket knife. Right. So, Mrs. Martine seen the whole of it. Mr. Martine went for me with this knife and I shot in the wall, but he was not sitting in the chair at all. I shot in the wall to scare him. With that, he came right for me with this knife, crouching-like. So I, I think the crouching, he's trying to somehow establish that trajectory. Like, well, oh, he, he the crouched. A- the angle was, that's how he's explaining the angle. Which, why um, would you, why would a big man come at somebody else crouching? Yes. And he was a large man. Right. There's no crouching. And, and what's he going to lunge up at him, like a tiger or something? That's ridiculous. Yeah. I was not trying to kill him, just trying to defend myself. I tried to hit him on the leg. He turned around again and came for me, came right up to me, and I shot another shot. Then he went right into the front room with his right hand up, and he said, I am shot, and then fell. I put on my coat and gave myself up. I went to the police justice, and Justice McCormick told me to give myself up to the chief of police, and the chief locked me in jail. That was all there was to it. Oh, that's it, huh? Now, what is he... <laughs> now, explain this. When I, I, I tried to hit him on the leg, he turned around again. When did he, when did he turn around previously? <laughs> yeah, he never says. That makes no sense. Yeah, his story, it, it doesn't flow, first of all, mm-hmm. and it doesn't match the forensic evidence. He's no. trying to testify around the evidence like, well, no, it, it can match. Well, no, it, can't. it doesn't. So he didn't do himself many justices here. 
No. Um, one of the neighbors did testify there was some marital difficulties between them. But um, I would imagine any couple married 20 years with four kids is probably going to have some few marriage. Rough, yeah, a few rough patches. Right. And I also have another question with this. Um, if Mrs. Martine is there handing him the revolver, didn't she initially say she was in the other room? Yes. And they do end up putting her back on the stand to, to sort of refute that. However, one of the reporters that was, remember the reporters show up? Yes. Well, they're called because one of the reporters testified that Rosie admitted to him that night that she had given the revolver because he had asked for it in the morning. So, again, to premeditation, right. before this whole altercation, she has already given the yes. revolver. That's rather suspicious. Yeah. Again, you know this man is having a dispute with your husband, and you give him your husband's gun? Right. Yeah, it's a bad... Um, she, of course, denies this. You can imagine. Well, right? then where did he get it from? Well, right, exactly. And and she gave... I'm pretty sure she gave it to him. Right. Um, I don't think it was at the heat of the moment, like, here, kill him. It was probably earlier in the day. Yes. Just like she told the reporter, because she probably wasn't thinking straight at that moment. That's her most... Right. That's you know, a rather damning bit of evidence. So the defense attorney, now this is a, a spin. Remember, the defense attorney was at the scene. Yes. The night of the crime. So he testifies at the trial. So the defense attorney takes the stand. The defense attorney yes, takes the Wilton stand. Yes, Wilton Bennett. Have you ever heard I, of such a thing? They wouldn't be defense attorney at that point, I think. There'd no. be a conflict today. I would think so. But 1903, I guess. Hey, whatever. So he says, I would say almost the exact words. She said, I want you to do the best you can for this poor young man. This is Rosie to the defense attorney. I remember that expression, that he is innocent and that he did this thing in the defense of my life and his life, that I gave him the revolver and told him to protect himself. That is the words almost verbatim. So she is clearly on Kepping's side. Yes. Oh, boy. Um, and I give a lot of credibility to his testimony because, again, he's, from what I can find in, in just multiple sources of different cases, very well-respected attorney. Mm -hmm. This is his livelihood testifying in a county court. He's not going to perjure himself. You would not think so. No. This isn't something that he's going to lie about. Um it's certainly not helping his client, I don't think. I, it's, I, I just can't imagine today a defense attorney getting on the stand. No, to... I, wouldn't, I couldn't even comprehend it. No. Um, it would be a major conflict. So the people countered with the Martine children, they testify that, no, dad wasn't abusive. Okay, um, so the kids get on the, again, that's pretty brutal, the kids yeah. getting on the stand. And then there's some back and forth. They brought in a neighbor kid. Mm -hmm. Who said, oh, no, no, they, you know, they told me about how abusive he was and how he used to get drunk. And then they bring the kid back on and say, no, I never told them that. So they do try to oh. paint him as being this abusive, drunken right. man. Um, and uh, he may have been a drinker. Right. No evidence was really elicited that showed there was some kind of violence in the household. So I don't I don't think they made their case very well. So they have a closing argument. And the judge basically sums everything up to the jury. And normally the judge would review the evidence mm -hmm. in the case, apparently. 
But basically, he tells the jury that, listen, the issue, I don't have to sum the evidence up. The issue isn't whether he was killed by him or not. That's not in question. We know that Albert killed John Martin. Right. So the issue before the jury now is a little more complicated. It's, is he justified, first mm-hmm. of all? And he goes over the argument of self-defense. You know, was he justified? And he explains that he had a duty to retreat if feasible. Okay, so before you pull the trigger, if you can get out of the house, yes. it's your obligation right. to do so. Or go back up the stairs, put th- whatever it would have been, okay. that, if it's feasible. And that was up to the jury to okay. decide. You know, essentially, he told the ju- jury, if you believe he had no other alternative, then find him not guilty. This mm-hmm. is the judge now. He's he, he does make sure to really get that out to the right. jury. Like, if you really think he defended himself, you have to find him not guilty. Then he charges the criminal offenses. So he gives the jury now three additional options. If they don't think it's justified, he says they can find him guilty of murder first if they believe it was intentional and premeditated. In other words, it was a premeditated decision to kill John Martin. Okay. If they don't believe that, if it wasn't premeditated, but in that moment he shot him with the intent to kill him, they can find him guilty of murder too. Mm-hmm. Then the judge gives them manslaughter first. Wow, which, there's a lot to consider here. Yeah. If it wasn't intentional and his intent was not to kill, but he killed him with a weapon anyway, then you can find him guilty of manslaughter in the first degree. So the jury's got four possible verdicts. The first one, of course, is going to be not guilty. Mm-hmm. He's justified. He No criminal culpability. Right. The second potential is murder first, mm-hmm. which is a death penalty by a statute at that point murder second which is not a death penalty statute okay and then manslaughter first which again would not be manslaughter they would just be prison sentences the district attorney even went on record which i found pretty remarkable and made sure he put on the record to the to the judge my duty being here a judicial one it seems to me proper that i should ask your honor to charge the jury that the defendant is presumed to be innocent until the contrary is proven, and that the presumption of innocent attaches to him and remains with him throughout the whole case from beginning to end. So the prosecuting district attorney is trying to stress that he is innocent until proven contrary. What's going on in this case? I think it was just a very due diligence. Like, wow, we want to make, I think knowing that the top charge of murder first is a death penalty level mm-hmm. offense. They wanted to make sure everything's done right. Okay. You know, if, if someone's life is in the balance, let's make sure we do it right. I think that speaks to their character. Okay. So um, that's a good thing. Yeah. So I think it was quite a fair trial. Um, it doesn't take long, eight to nine hours. The jury deliberates and they find him guilty of murder in the first degree. Um, All right. So premeditated. Yes. That comment to the brother-in-law. Um, the trajectory of the bullets, yep. four shots fired. Yes. I I would have to agree. Yeah, um, I still don't know what the deliberation, what what the holdup would have been. I don't yeah, think it eight was over to nine hours. I think they were probably wrestling between murder one and murder two. I see. Pro- yes, that's my okay. guess. I don't think they ever thought it was justified. Mm-hmm. I can imagine a lot of debate about how much premeditation, and I think the brother-in-law's testimony, like you just mentioned, mm-hmm. that was probably a. a Big linchpin, and then they probably believe. Yes, I asked. He asked for the gun, and and the fact that the the wife had 
possibly given him the gun earlier in the day. Yeah. Um, and I would have, I would have smelled something wrong when she's <laughs> saying, "Oh, he's innocent. Please do what you can for him." What yeah. you know? He, it's it's uh, yeah, pretty fishy. Yeah, and there's going to be more twists. This All is like, right. Good. I love the twists. We wouldn't be talking about it. everything we talk about has twists. <laughs> but the defendant was sentenced um, to the required sentence, which was to be taken to the state prison at Sing Sing and there put to death in a manner prescribed by law someday during the week beginning August 2nd, 1903. So that's fast. He's got a yes. couple of months to live. They don't mess around back no. then. No. So he goes to prison the next day, June 18th. Mm-hmm. He's admitted to Sing Sing. Um, his lawyer in July files for a new trial because there's some allegations of juror misconduct. Mm-hmm. They, they allege that there was a juror at the Orange Inn running his mouth about the guy's guilt during the trial. Uh, um, but like, the court, you know, considers it and says, there's no evidence. I, you know, we're not entertaining this. So then they appeal. They appeal the conviction to the Court of Appeals. And they also appeal the denial of that motion for a new trial. So they're appealing two issues. Mm-hmm. So now there's a stay. He's not going to go to the All electric right. chair. So he's... Right. Got a few more months. Yes, they can't They can't do that until the appeals have been exhausted now. So the case is argued in March of 1904. So some time has gone by. Mm-hmm. The defense argues that, listen, the verdict is against the weight of the evidence and the juror misconduct is grounds for a new trial. And, of course, the people say, no, it's not against the weight of the evidence and we couldn't find any evidence of juror misconduct. The Court of Appeals, about a month later, issues their final decision. Um, and they give a lot of credibility to the jury. Basically, listen, and and the Court of Appeals often, even now when I read some of their decisions, right. listen, the jury was there. They saw the demeanor of the witnesses. They heard the testimony. They could evaluate the credibility. You know, it's we're not going to disturb right. that. We, we read the text, the transcript of a trial now, but I think that's an excellent point. The people there looking at their faces, hearing yes. the tone of their voice, their mannerisms, um, there's a lot more involved in these trials than the text that we read. Right. right. We read it. It's almost clinical by the time we're reading mm-hmm. it. You know, it's devoid of the emotion sometimes. But so it's very, very rare that you see the courts overturn these verdicts just because, you know, absent of any real mm-hmm. extenuating circumstances. So they give the broad credibility. Um, they can't find any reason to overturn the verdict or the ruling of the jur- juror misconduct. So they uphold the conviction. They deny the, you know, appeal. They uphold the conviction. And Albert gets a new date with Old Sparky. Old Sparky again. Wow. Um, An interesting connection. That same day, the Court of Appeals denied another man's appeal Mm -hmm. who was facing the electric electric chair, a Swede named Oscar Borgstrom, Mm -hmm. who had killed his wife in Westchester. Um. And he would end up dying the same day as so their, their appeals were denied the same day and, and they would both go to the yes. chair the same. I didn't realize they would do multiple yeah. executions like that. So in June of 1904, another twist develops when Albert gives a confession where he claims Rosie shot her husband. Oh, boy. Due to the ongoing issue of alleged infidelity with him. 
So she, he's admitting to an affair, right? And that Rosie was any and credibility to that. I, I think they were having an affair, right? I don't think Rosie shot her husband. Okay, not sure why he would allege that, um, and why you wouldn't just say that from the beginning. Listen, I was going to take the blame for her, but I didn't do it. Well. How many people, and we've talked about them on this show, uh, men are suckers for women and do the take the fall for them. Yeah, they do. <laughs> um, he said he would take the blame. They try to get the governor to, to commute the sentence, mm-hmm. and the governor is like, his story's absurd. Okay, I'm so not, he didn't, he didn't yes, fall for there's, it. There, there's, no, there's nothing. You're not getting out of this one. Um, and I have to mention, I have a picture of Albert. He was a decent-looking guy. Yeah. Uh, young. I mean, hey, um, a young, strapping, twenty-two-year-old German yeah, I, living in the house. I, I'm sure for Rosie that was the <laughs> jackpot, but I'm thinking a young, strapping German could have found any woman he wanted in Port Jervis. But do you, do you have a picture of Rosie? No, that I don't See? have. See, so she could have I been a femme fatale. She could have been. Now I have to find a picture of Rosie. Thanks. You, See, sorry, this is how it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so on June thirteenth, nineteen o four. Um, a minister from Port Jervis um, is in attendance down at Sing Sing when they escort Albert into the death chamber at 5.53 a.m. Within a minute, he's strapped into the chair. And at 5.55 a.m., the state electrician's assistant flipped the switch, sending over 1,800 volts at 7 amperes into his body for 7 seconds, followed by 240 volts for 23 seconds. They give him another quick jolt, and he's dead. So in minutes, yes. in minutes, that's remarkable. Uh, the warden declared that was the quickest electrocution I ever saw. <laughs> Not a sign of a pulse could be detected after the first jolt. Wow. So and this is a young, healthy guy. So yeah. this speaks to the the brutality of the electric chair. But remember we mentioned Borgstrom. Oh, yes. The other well, the other execution that day. So after they, they remove Albert to the adjoining room to have an autopsy done on him, Borgstrom wasn't so easy to kill. It took four jolts to carry Oof. out the sentence. And the third one almost killed the doctor. How did that happen? The doctor was listening to the chest with the stethoscope, and the assistant went to grab the switch and flip it again. Oh, my God. As the stethoscope was on the man's chest. We know stethoscopes have metal pieces. Yes. Um, luckily, the state electrician was paying attention and grabbed his hand. <sighs> And saved his life. So there could have been three executions yes. that um, day. The newspapers had a field day, if you can imagine, with that. Oh, of course. Flub. Of course. So an interesting case. Uh, Albert ends up buried in a cemetery near Sing Sing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's he disappears from history. The Martins disappear from history. There's well, nothing else. Well, I, I have to dispute that for one moment because I was fascinated by this case. And nobody ever said what little Hazel said. If she's standing next to her father during the crime, did anybody ever ask her? So I'm just curious. So I went to Ancestry and did a little genealogy, and I found in the 1915 uh, census, so 12 years later, Hazel's now 16 years old. She's a glove maker, so she's (laughs) followed her father's footsteps, footsteps, and she's not living with her mother. She's living with her aunt and uncle. So is that a red flag? It makes was, me wonder what happened. Yeah. Did she resent her mother some? Did she find out there was something fishy going on there? Um, 
I don't know. I I couldn't find uh, I couldn't find Rosie after that, and I think I found Hazel again in 1920. Um, moved down to Newark and was a sales lady in a department store. So she definitely moved out and moved on. Yeah, I I tried tracking Rosie down too, and she just sort of, and she maybe reassumed a maiden name. Could have gotten married again. Gotten right. Could have been another young, handsome German in town <laughs> that, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. But clearly, uh, and and there was no talk ever of Rosie being indicted nope. as a co-conspirator? Nope. They never, I, never I talked that, about it. I find that fascinating. Here, she, she says, here, take my husband's gun and defend yourself. Right. I don't know if the jury bought that part or if they just accepted that, hey, can I have your gun? I need the revolver. And she handed him the revolver. So that I'm sure they thought, well, she probably didn't know what he was going to do. Well. But I think. <laughs> if there was an affair going on, which it I'm, seems likely, yeah. she knows there's this terrible dispute between her husband and she knows her husband has a pocket knife and she has handed a revolver to her lover. Yeah. She's definitely more culpable than she they're let on. And I'm sure at that point it was just, listen. The, the crime's been paid for. Mm-hmm. Is it worth pursuing now her, the mother of four children? Are we going to put her in the electric chair now? Um, there was still a lot of sensibilities back then. I with, guess. But, yeah. But, yeah. So a very, very fishy case. Yeah. And once again, um, some man might have gotten <laughs> the, short end, the, the short end of the electric literally chair. Literally the short end. <laughs> but it, And it just illustrates, I, I think... And we talk about this all the time. You do genealogy research in your family history, and it's so addicting. It's, it is. It, it just leads to one thing after another. And it's wonderful you stumbled on this case. And uh, it, I'm sure there's more facts to come out in the future. Yeah, and I'm always digging a little bit here and there on this case. It's like everything else. I'm researching so many different things at once, but... And what does Rosie look like? Yeah, so I got to find a picture of Rosie. <laughs> this could explain everything. Yeah, so I'm sure there's a picture of her. There was a picture of, in the picture of the parlor that the detectives took, you could see John on the wall, oh, a rather large okay. picture of him. Okay. So I'm sure there was one of her. Someone's got to have it. Someone's got to have it. If you're related to the Martins from Port Jervis, <laughs> 1904, contact the show, please. Sounds good. So, uh Another another wonderful show, and we have a lot more uh, interesting, juicy <laughs> cases, to use yes, Mike's word, do. in the future. So we will see you again. If you haven't been murdered in the Hudson Valley. This is HudsonRiverRadio.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.